Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 22 of my 60s music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to episode part two of episode number 22 of my Sexy Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, for those of you who kn- new listeners out there who are just now discovering this podcast, you're on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? Well, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I am Sam Williams, and I'm a 22-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week with this podcast, I review one song by one artist from the 60s, and first talk about my opinion on the song, and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics, and then I dig deep into the history behind the track, and talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the studio musicians on the track, and all the juicy behind-the-scenes details in each and every song I talk about within each episode of this podcast. And this episode is also going to be a two-parter, so um, part one is all about my opinion on the song I talked about last week. And for this episode of the podcast, it's going to be part two, but this time... We're going to be talking about the same song, which is The Rascal's Groovin', but this time we're going to be talking about the behind-the-scenes details on the track. I'm going to talk about, um, you know, how the band was formed and, you know, how the group got its name and also, like, what label they were assigned to and really what was the band all about musically. I'm going to talk all about that in this episode of this podcast. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind this band, The Rascal's. Because you might not know anything about this band and know what you're thinking. Sam, like, who the heck were the Rascals? I've never heard of them before. Well, the Rascals were one of the biggest groups of the 60s. But exactly how big were they? Well, in between the years 1966 and 1969, the band had 13 consecutive top 40 hits. And three of those singles went to number one. And not only that, but the origins of this band were very interesting. At least for me, they were. You see, unlike the last band I talked about in this podcast, Love and Spoonful, who, by the way, were all influenced by a lot of folk and blues artists from that era, um, the Rascals, on the other hand, were all influenced by African-American rhythm and blues and rock and roll artists and songwriters. But really, what I mean by that is that all the members of the group were big fans of African-American R&B. And they were fans of everything from the late 50s to Little Richard and Fats Domino and Ray Charles and Jackie Wilson and and Sam Cooke to all some Motown artists like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and Martha Reese and the Vandellas and New York artists too like Chuck Jackson and the Drifters and Salman Burke and Dion Warwick and Shirelles and also Sam Cooke and Gene McDaniels. So, imagine if there was a group of mostly Italian white guys, mostly from New Jersey, who were all influenced by all sorts of black R&B vocalists and singers from that era, that all of a sudden decided to form a group that started out as a hard-edged, heavy rock and soul band, but turned into a mellow, blue-eyed soul group. And I know what you're thinking, Sam, what the heck does blue-eyed soul mean? Well, I'm just going to explain to you exactly what that is right now. 
See, the term blue-eyed soul is basically basically classification of white artists that were heavily influenced by African-American artists, almost to the point that if you didn't know they were white, you would have instantly assumed that they were black if you didn't see a picture of them. And the Rascals at the time were the quintessential blue-eyed soul band, and they were most certainly the most commercially successful one. And even though the idea of white artists covering songs that were originally written and recorded by black artists wasn't totally a brand new idea at the time. I mean, Elvis did it in the late 50s and early 60s, and Pat Boone did it, and so did several other artists. Um, that kind of music wasn't classified as Blue-Eyed Soul until around the mid-60s with another group called the Righteous Brothers. And if you don't know who they are, we will definitely do a whole two-part episode on them in the, in the near future as well. But the things that made them sound quote-unquote African-American were the band's lead vocals and backup vocals, and as well as Felix Cavallari's Hammond B3 organ. And if you're wondering, so Sam, what the heck does a Hammond B3 organ have to do with black music? Well, organs were always a part of black music because those were the keyboards used during African-American church services. And many black groups, such as Booker T and the MGs, used the Hammond B3 organ in a lot of their songs. But now that we're on the subject of the Rascals, exactly who were they? Well, the band originally consisted of four main guys. Felix Cavallari on lead vocals and organ slash keys. Eddie Brigatti on backup vocals and sometimes lead vocals and tambourine. Uh, Gene Cornish on lead and rhythm guitar and backup vocals. And Dino Donnelly on drums. Two of the original guys in the band were from New Jersey originally. One was from New York and the other fourth member was from Canada. The band originally got their start in the earlier part of the decade by playing in a group known as Joey D and the Starlighters. See, Eddie Brigatti's older brother David at the time was a full-fledged member of the group, but when the Starlighters experienced some, ma- some members that left the band, they all of a sudden needed new members to fill the empty positions in the band. So David Brigatti brought in his younger brother Eddie to join the band, and Eddie brought in his friend Gene Cornish to join the group. And Felix Cavalier will also soon join the band. But before Felix joined Joey D and the Starlighters, he worked as a musician in a few different groups in the Catskills Mountains at a resort located in that area. He was also a member of a group called the Escorts, located at Syracuse University before going to the Catskill Mountains to play for a band that would play at one of the resorts over there. And it was there that he met somebody that would hire him to play with Joey D and the Starlighters. And in playing that band, that's where he met the principal members of what would become the Rascals a few years later. But for now, they were just touring as members of the group Joy D and the Starlighters. And actually, one interesting thing about this period is that they did do a European tour and played gigs with the Beatles in Europe... Um, before they took over the American pop culture music scene in 1964. And Felix remembers being intrigued by the band's sound. He was blown away by how crazy the young teenage girls were going over their music and how he really couldn't hear them live because of how loud the teenage girls were. So that ultimately inspired him to form his own band with guys that he met from playing with Joey D and the Starlighters. They sooner than later brought in Dino Donnelly, who became the band's primary stickman, a.k.a. drummer, and within six months, they had a record deal with the one and only Atlantic Records. 
And they actually got signed to Atlantic not based off of a demo that they submitted to the label, but on a live performance by them at a New York club called The Barge that Sid Bernstein, a promotion man and business manager for Atlantic Records, saw. And it was then that they were signed to Atlantic Records as the first white group that ever got signed to that label. At the time, the band's songwriting chops were not quite there yet, so their first two singles were covers. The first single, which by the way, which is song, which is a song called "I Ain't Gonna Eat Out My Heart Anymore," didn't do that great. But their second, a song that Felix first heard on a black radio station done by a group called Olympics, shot all the way number one, and that was a song called "Good Lovin." And it was then that TV appearances and tours followed for the group. But it wasn't long before the band got into songwriting, and the songwriting partnership of Felix Cavalieri and Eddie Brigatti was formed, almost serving as the band's own version of Lennon and McCartney. See, the Rascals' early singles were very much on the heavy rock side of things, and songs like Good Lovin' and You Better Run and Come On It, Come On Up did a good job of showcasing that. But one more thing I wanted to mention to you about this group is that when they originally formed and when, in, and when in, they were in the middle of choosing a name for the band, they originally settled on just the Rascals. That was, that was what where they were going to originally call themselves. They were just going to call themselves the Rascals. But their marriage's last promoter, Sid Bernstein, had them add a young to their name, at first calling themselves the Young Rascals for their first batch of singles, primarily because there was already an existing active group at the time the band was formed called the Harmonica Rascals, and they did not want to risk a lawsuit on their hands from the group that was already calling themselves the Rascals. So they called themselves the Young Rascals, and by the way, they didn't really like to be called the Young Rascals at all. They just originally wanted to be called the Rascals. They hated the Young being added to their name. But the Young portion of their name was later on dropped, and they went back to their original name, the, which was, by the way, the Rascals, in 1968. Anyways, by early 1967, the band did a good job of establishing themselves as a hard soul rock band with, uh, with some of their previous singles, like Good Lovin', You Better Run, and Come On Up. But to be honest with you, the song I'm reviewing in this week's and last week's episode of the show was quite the departure from some of their earlier singles. And you'll notice that if you listen to some of their other songs, like the ones I just mentioned. Because Groovin' was a band's first attempt at a mid-tempo blue-eyed soul ballad that wasn't entirely driven by heavy electric guitar and organ. And now that we're at it, let's talk about the origins for this particular song. See, the band was inspired to write the song because at the time... They were doing pretty well for themselves, constantly putting out hit singles that made the Billboard chart. Um, but during this time, the band was working six days a week, Monday through Saturday, doing touring and recording and writing, and they always worked Fridays and Saturdays. And at the time, Sundays were the only days that the band could have off to hang out with their girlfriends and do whatever they wanted and see whatever they wanted and could spend it with whatever they wanted. And the co-writer of the song, Felix Cavalieri, was madly in love with this young girl at the time who would become the inspiration behind this song and the next two major hits for the band, A Girl Like You and How Can I Be Sure. So with Sunday being the band's only day off, the only day they could really have to themselves on their incredibly hectic, hectic schedules, naturally that inspired them to write the song. 
And which I again reiterate to you that the song is, in fact, about the one day off we have in our week where we can just kick back and relax and do whatever we want all day and not have to worry about work or in school or whatever we currently have going on in our lives. But moving on, let's talk about how the track was recorded and some of the details behind the session on this song. Okay, so this was the band's first song recorded at Talent Master Studios in New York with Chris Houston engineering the track. All their previous tracks were recorded at Atlantic Studios using the state-of-the-art 8-track tape machine. And at the time, Atlantic was the only major label to have one, but sooner and later, other recording studios in other cities and states would get them as well. Felix Cavalieri decided to switch things up in this particular track and play piano instead of organ. And one thing I wanted to mention about this band is that I don't know if you have already noticed by now, but this band didn't play live with a bass player. Because earlier in the show, I said there was a vocalist, a keyboard player, a guitar player, and a drummer. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute, where is the bass player? Well, guess what? This band didn't have one. And which was very unusual at the time. Because up until then, most bands had to have a bass player in their group. But they were one of the first bands to play without one, at least live. And if you're wondering, so what did Felix do for the low end in their songs? Well, Felix simply used the bass pedals on his organ, and he simply played the bass lines on his keyboard to fill up the empty gap, which was no bass. And they definitely predated the Doors, which, by the way, used the same lineup of organ lead vocals and guitar and drums, but no bass, by at least a year. Because the door didn't have their first major hit until 1967. Um, the Rascals had their first major hit in 66. But like the Doors, they quickly figured out that playing without a bass player in the studio was not going to work at all. So on their first bunch of Rascal singles, from Good Lovin' up to I've Been Lonely Too Long, Gene Cornish, the band's guitar player, played bass on their recordings. For this particular song, the, the band got a session player to play on the song. And by the way, he was a session bass player. And they found out about him because the band's co-producer slash arranger, Arif Martin, recommended them to him because he knew that he was a bass player worth his salt. Because at the time, he was on and off touring with King Curtis's band. And he was none other than Chuck Rainey. Chuck would go on to play on this song, as well as A Girl Like You and A Beautiful Morning, two other really big hits by the band. And Jerry Jamont played on People Gotta Be Free. And Richard Davis played the upright bass on How Can I Be Sure. And by the way, these are all bass players. Um, Arif Martin handled all the percussion on this track. And another really interesting thing about this track is that there is no drums on the song. And there is just a conga played by the band's drummer, Dino Dinelli. And as far as who played the beautiful melodic harmonica on this track, they used a session guy named Michael Weinstein for that specific part of the single for the single version of the song. While on the album version, Gene Cornish, the band's guitar player, played the harmonica. And if you're also wondering who did those very realistic sounding bird sound effects in the beginning and towards the end of the song, the people responsible for that were Eddie Brigatti and his brother David Brigatti who also provided the song's high falsetto backup vocals, and they also harmonized with Felix on words like the title of the song and really and moving and doing. 
Um, Felix Cavalier is once quoted as saying that Eddie and David could come up with the most realistic sounding, uh, you know, animal sound effects that it was just, you couldn't tell a difference between them and like real animals. So that was really interesting. But anyways, I don't know if you guys are paying attention when I first mentioned this in this two part, in part two of this two part episode of this podcast, but this particular song was quite the departure from the band's previous singles. And this did not sit well with one of the executives of the label this band was signed to. You see, when they finished the original master recording of the song and presented it to Jerry Wexler, co-president of Atlantic Records, his first gut, gut initial reaction to the song was, What the hell are you guys doing? You guys are a rock and roll band. There's no drums on this track. This will never be a hit. You guys can't be doing this easy listening samba bullshit. And at first, he was very adamant on not releasing the song because he truly thought that the song would bomb because it was so different than what the band was already doing with the previous hits like Good Lovin' and You Better Run and Come On Up and I've Been Lonely Too Long. But that is until a New York DJ heard the single and begged to differ with what Jerry Lexler had to say on this song. When he first heard this, this track, he was like, are you kidding me? This is a number one record. And by the way, this DJ was Murray the K. And Murray the K was one of the most powerful DJs on the East Coast at the time. And since he had so much clout and say in the music business, I mean, this guy, you know, was one of the biggest um, hit breakers of that time. I mean, if he gave your record airtime at the station that he was at, it was almost guaranteed to be a hit. So he really knew a hit song when he heard one. Um, Jerry Wexler trusted his word and he said okay and they released a single as the band's fifth single and it turns out that Murray Kay was right all along the song climbed all the way to number one in May and June of 1967 and surprisingly the song was also involved with a number one chart battle with another song released on Atlantic Records by Ruther Franklin otherwise known as Respect the band would continue to have major hits after Groovin, but things started to slow down for them after the third and final number one hit, People Gotta Be Free, in 1968. And they got a good run of small chart hits in 1969, but then they got really experimental and jazz in the early 70s, and they broke up shortly after that. So to wrap up this two-part episode of this podcast, um, basically the Rascals were a blue-eyed soul band, and... They were essentially a group that tried to sound black, even though they were white, because they were heavily influenced by African-American artists. And this record almost didn't get released because, you know, it, it the record executive didn't like it, but DJ thought it was going to be hit, so they released it anyway, and it climbed number one. And the song was all about just the one day that we have our, to ourselves and our crazy busy schedules and the day we can have off to relax and just unwind. Um, so that concludes part two of episode number 22 of my 60 music podcast, the millennial throwback machine. I'm Sam Williams. And if you liked the, uh, this episode or you found, you learned some really cool facts about this band that you didn't already know by them. And you found this group interesting for whatever reason. And you learned some really cool things about the band that you didn't already know, um, from, you know, listening to the show. You can email me at sam at hickeywilliams.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at iheartoldies. 
And you can also check out more of my original music at samloysmusic.net. Now, before we wrap up uh, part two of this episode of this podcast, I wanted to say that I'm doing something very cool tonight. Um, now, earlier in the show, I did I reviewed a song by an artist that I love named Johnny Rivers. I'm going to see him tonight at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills. And I'm very, very excited to see him. Um, now, one thing that I will say, and I'll, and I'll and I'll let you guys know if this winds up happening, but one thing I've heard about him and the way he does his shows is that I, I've heard that he does meet and greets and autograph signings after his gigs and, you know, like in the lobby of the venue. So, um... I will keep you guys posted as to whether or not I get to meet him and talk to him after the show is over. Um, and I'm not really sure if it's going to happen, but I'll definitely let you know um, next week if it does or not. And I'll share a cool little story with you guys uh, maybe at the end of next week's episode or in the beginning. And if I learn something cool about his music from just picking his brain about it, uh, you know, once I, if I do get to meet him and I'll let you guys know whether or not that happens. And I'm excited cause he still sounds exactly like he did when he was in his twenties and he's pushing 80 years old. I believe he's in his mid seventies. So that's just awesome that he still sounds exactly like he did when he was young and I'm definitely looking forward to it. And yeah, so I'm Sam Williams and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the podcast until next week, please keep things moving.